Welcome back to the Philly Young Adults Podcast. We are studying through the book of Deuteronomy in our large group studies every other week here at Calvary Philly and in our home groups spread around the area. The book of Deuteronomy chronicles the last little bit of time before the children of Israel moved into the land of Canaan. And the biggest thing happening in Deuteronomy is that it gives us these speeches that Moses gave to the children of Israel. We really get to hear the heart of Moses and even more importantly, the heart of God for his people on the eve of one of the most momentous times in their history. And there's so much for us to glean as the people of God as we are moving through our lives. So here we go with the next study in the book of Deuteronomy. of Deuteronomy is going to go into some detail about what that actually looks like. What is, again, what's the shape of a life that keeps God's commands? And this first section looks into this fundamental divide between the two paths, between serving the true God and, and knowing who he really is and serving idols. And again, just to, if, if you're not familiar with the history, this this issue of knowing the true God versus serving idols was super relevant for Israel to understand before they began to go into the land of Canaan because the cultures of Canaan were saturated with dark spirituality. That's one way to say it. And, and they were saturated with the, the explicit worship of false gods and idols. And whenever God's people have to move through or even, you know, live in, maybe they're not moving through, maybe they're living in a culture dominated by allegiance to anything that's not the true God. Whenever that's true of God's people, that they have to spend time in a culture dominated by allegiance, I'm going to say it that way, to anything that's not the true God, there's a danger that they'll be seduced into admiring or fearing or serving or even loving and worshiping these other things, or in the language of Moses here, these other gods. And of course, you're probably already making connections in your mind. That's where scriptures like these are helpful for us too, right? We live in a culture, a culture saturated with the fear of false gods and the admiration for false gods and the commands that false gods give and people serving false gods. That, that's our culture. And, and usually we know this. Maybe in our day, they're not identified as gods. They're ad- identified as ideologies or progress or movements but when you realize that they, they operate today, these things operate exactly the same as false gods, then I think you start to see the connection and really you see the relevance here in these scriptures. What these idols were back in Israel's day were centers of power, you know, centers of power and attraction for people, forces that could move people to collective action or forces that could command allegiance for, from groups of people things that could define identity. A lot of people were defined, their identity was defined by the God they worshipped, right? Or uh, some, something powerful enough to issue decrees to be obeyed. And I don't just mean human government, I mean, I mean that force beyond it, right? In our culture, um, you know, I think that if we struggle to identify, like where would idolatry be in our culture? Simply reading passages like this can help. 
we can take the things that God's going to say that we're reading about here, the things that God says to his people, and we can just ask ourselves, where do I see these things in my world? It's actually a really simple transference. And, and whatever the answer to the question is, that's your answer, right? The answer to that question, where do I see things like this in my world, is where what we're really looking at is idolatry. And so look at chapter 12 now. God says, Moses says, chapter 12, verse 1, These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall possess served their God. So destroy the places, right? All the places where the nations which you shall dispossess, possess when you come into the land where they served their gods on the high mountains verse 2 still and on the hills and under every green tree and you shall destroy their altars break their sacred pillars burn their wooden images with fire you shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place you shall not worship the lord your god with such things but you shall seek the place where the lord your god chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place and there you shall go been quoting a commentary by a man named Daniel Block a lot. It's great. And in his commentary on Deuteronomy, he makes a great historical point about this passage, and he just says this. Ancient approaches, this is Daniel Block, ancient approaches to religion were concretized, that's how scholars write, made concrete, in specific places and actions. Ancient approach, approaches to religion were made uh, they were they were they were solidified, you could say, in specific places and actions rather than abstract systems of belief. It wasn't just that they had a system of belief around the worship of, say, the god Baal. It was that they had specific places they went and things they did to worship Baal. Moses assumes here, inspired by God, that obliterating the physical symbols of paganism will reduce the temptation of idolatry. I thought that was a good encapsulation of what's going on in that passage. So again, pagan thought back in the day at least, that Moses was around, pagan thought included the idea that gods were localized. They, they ruled certain places. They had little areas that they were in charge of. But like we read last week in our home groups, the true God claims ownership of the entire universe. Chapter 10, verse 14 says it, right? The whole Bible says it. The true God claims ownership of the entire universe. He made it all. He owns it all. And so in verse 1 of chapter 12, Moses reminds Israel that The Lord, that God who made it all and owns it all, the Lord is giving them this land. Which by definition means that the gods, the people in the land at the time were worshiping did not own the land. And that the claims that those gods made on that land and those people were false claims. So I actually think this is an eternal principle for us. I think this is helpful. Any claim that any idea or system or God, or anything, makes on a people or a land. Any claim that something makes on a people or a place, which does not acknowledge that God is the ultimate king, that claim is a false claim. Americans in 2022 have no obligation. This is actually important. Americans in 2022 actually have no obligation to any idea or demand that does not come from the living God. And so Moses told Israel in their day to to actually go and eliminate 
the physical structures that were part of that of the whole spiritual system, a bunch of different spiritual systems that were in operation in that day. And verses 4 and 5 here that we just read are key. Verses 4 and 5. True worship of the true God, real worship of the living God, is initiated and directed by God himself. The idea here is go to the place that God chooses. Don't go to the places that people choose for their false gods. You can't, you can't worship the true God with the methods that people use to worship false gods. So these are just like baseline spiritual principles to understand how to serve Christ, right? And since we're actually, all of us, all of us humans are actually strangers to God until he, he draws us into a relationship with himself, right? No one is born sort of knowing God in, in, in any meaningful way. Because that's true, we actually need him to tell us how to serve him. Because we actually need him to describe himself to us. Tell me how to serve you. Tell me who you are. And so in verse 5, Moses pivots from directing Israel away from idolatry. And he begins to direct them towards the real worship of the true God. Verse 5 again, he says, But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings. These are all different offerings they had to give for their worship. The heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. That was verse 5, 6, and 7. So notice, just take that little three-verse section. Notice all the joy in this whole passage as we read. There's actually a lot of joy here. We're saying that in this section, we're noticing two things. We're noticing the bigness of God's heart, the truth about the true God, who he really is, and conversely, the evil of idolatry, right? The truth about false gods. And so again, just notice here what God is after. He says, don't go find the places where pagans worship their lies. Instead, find out where God is and go there because that's where you're going to find him. That's the idea here. That's key. These passages, they're not just really, they're not actually really rules to follow. That's not really what they are. They're invitations to God's people to let them know that, that he's available. He's available for them to come into his presence. And verse 7 here says, when you go where God is, you're going to be right in his presence. He'll be there. And, and those verses, right, all, all the details of your life, they're going to be part of that whole thing when you, when you go where he is. The, the work, all your work, everything you've produced, all your things, which, which actually all our stuff, right, all their things actually all belong to God, but they could bring just a token to represent the whole. And instead of what we have all over America right now today, which is lives full of physical blessing, that's what we have going on, but many of us anyway, but lives of emptiness, right, in America. Lives full of physical blessing, but lives of emptiness and anxiety and depression and meaninglessness. meaninglessness. The idea is that Israel would have lives full of things. Their things would actually have real meaning. Like their whole life is gathered up in this, right? Because the idea is Israel, to you, your, your things are going to speak of God's goodness and God's generous heart. When they looked at their rich lives, it wouldn't be a rich life full of things and emptiness. It would be, look what the God who is here with me, look at his bounty. These are tokens of his generosity, right? It would all be part of their walk with God. That would be the idea. All their stuff would just be part of God's love for them. 
and life would be full and meaningful because God was in it. And then it's like, you're going to go where God's revealing himself and you'll get, you'll celebrate right there with him for all of it, for all of life, for all of God in all of life, right? That's the picture that God's trying to paint that he was inviting them into. So Moses says, the choice is here, God's way and joy or your way, Israel, and misery. Look at verse eight. He says, you shall not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For as yet you have not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. So let's not miss again that verse eight is the essence of what we believe in America to be the pathway to the good life. Right? Everyone just do what they think is right. That's the American mantra. God says that's not the way at all. And I wonder if we're supposed to see actually a connection between verse 8 and verse 9. I wonder if there's a connection there. Like doing what is right in our own eyes prevents us from coming into God's rest and the inheritance he wants us to give us. I don't know, something to think about. And Moses told Israel something like, maybe that was okay for living in the desert, everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. That makes sense, right? It certainly creates deserts. Just look all around us. But it's not going to work at all in the blessed land that God's giving you, Israel. I think that's the idea. Because Israel, God wants to live in that land with you, and your heart's only going to want sin and darkness if it's not disciplined to obey God's word. It's one of the things God's word does for us, is it disciplines us. It's not love things that, well, I guess you could say that are horrible. So he says, look at verse 8 again. You shall not at all do what we are doing here today. Every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For as yet, you've not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. But when you cross over Jordan, verse 10, and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, here it is again, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hands, and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. Right? We're still on this theme. You and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion or inheritance with you, take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses. In one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. So, again here, Israel was not to follow the lead of a culture steeped in idolatry, where they were going. They weren't to follow their own whims to decide where God could be worshipped. You have verse 11 there and verse 13. One important thing, I think, for, for us all to know in this is that Jesus actually addressed this, issues for, this issue for his followers so that, you know, we're more than 3,000 years away from what we're reading in Deuteronomy. All these years later, Jesus actually helped us understand what these verses say to us. So the backstory is, or I guess you could say, the forward story from Deuteronomy, hundreds of years after what we're reading here from Moses, God revealed to a king named David, Israel's king, where he wanted his temple built. And that temple, the one that was built by David's son in, in Jerusalem, was legitimately the place that God was talking about here in Deuteronomy 12. Before that, there was a tabernacle that was the place and it it. it you know, it moved around, but then finally God actually established a permanent place, a building with foundations in Jerusalem. But then in John chapter 4, so now we're, again, several thousand years after Moses, and um, 
well, 2,000 years ago from us. Sorry, more than 1,000 years after Moses, right? We're several thousand years after Moses. But anyway, later on in John chapter 4, we read that Jesus actually got into a discussion with a woman who was part of a religion that believed that the Jews had the wrong place for their temple. So she was part of a religion that was connected to Judaism, but it was like an offshoot for, for various reasons. And they actually believed the Jews had the wrong place and that her religion taught that a mountain in their homeland that they had the mountain, and actually that was the place where God wanted to be worshipped. So what you had actually, there was just a typical religious dispute, right? We have the true temple, it's not your temple, God is in our temple, he's not in your temple. But Jesus said this amazing thing to her. Some of you are familiar with it, I just want to read from John starting chapter uh, 4 verse 21. This is what Jesus said into this religious dispute about where the correct temple was, right? He said, woman, believe me, The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain, probably pointing to the mountain she was talking about, nor in Jerusalem, worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, speaking as a a man of the Israelite nation, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, this this is the money statement, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So that's John chapter 4. What that means is that for us tonight, Jesus taught that in the age after his resurrection, the time period that would follow his ministry on the earth, and the coming of the spirit, physical location for worshiping God takes a backseat to spiritual location. I think you can say it that way. And spiritual location, if it's not too weird to say, is less about where we are in a map than it is about where we are in relationship to God, right? It's, it's my relation to God that determines my spiritual location. It's distance from God, not distance from Jerusalem or from a, some other temple that actually matters. Again, it's relational. It's not geographical. So what it's all about, Jesus says, is reality, and fellowship with God, and the actual, like, from the heart, from the spirit, right? The actual worship of God. And it's not about taking our body to some place. And yet, and this I think is so good to really get our fingers all the way into what God says here, Jesus didn't teach that place didn't matter at all when it came to worship. Because after that conversation with that woman regard, uh, recorded in John chapter 4, we, we ha- also have it recorded that later, it's recorded in Matthew eighteen twenty. he says this, and a lot of you know this verse too, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So I don't want to go too far down the rabbit trail here, but I think we can say that you have a couple different things going on. In Deuteronomy, God is applying an eternal principle for Israel, which is worship God where God wants to be worshipped. That's sort of the eternal principle that is being applied for Deuteronomy. And remember, they were going into a place that had, you know, I don't know, hundreds of temples. Did it have thousands of shrines? Just worship any God you want anywhere. And so the problem there was this this poly religion, right? This is many just craziness, right? And so it seems like what God is doing here is he wants to warn them against that evil spirituality that's going to draw them into participation with those idols, those lies. And and so he's actually consolidating for them. There's one God, right? So in order to impress the idea that there's one God, he gives them one place to worship. And I think that's probably what was going on there, not hundreds for hundreds of gods. 
And in the teachings of Jesus, it's like you get the next part of the story again, which is, for us, God has chosen to dwell with any group of people anywhere on the globe who gather specifically in the name of Jesus to seek him and worship him and serve him. And that's pretty cool. So it's not that location doesn't matter, it's that the gathering of God's people, you could say, creates a location where God wants, he wants to be. And so if you say, well, where should we go to worship God? The Israelites were told where they should go. Where should we go? We should worship God anywhere and everywhere in the spirit. That's what John 4 says, right? Drawing near to God on God's terms. And I think we should also seek out the places where God's people are gathering explicitly in his name. And we should worship God there too. So it's interesting, I think. There's some depth in this teaching. And then as we move into verse 15 here, God's going to lay out some more truth for us because God knows that when the discussion turns to spiritual things, we can get tempted to think that, that you know, we're getting spiritual now. So what that means is something like uh, it's, it's less defined, like as if by spiritual we mean whatever feels powerful or something like that. That's a pretty common use of the word spiritual today, right? It's not as defined as physical things. It's more about like, you know, being totally engaged or something. But that's not what spiritual actually means at all. Spiritual just means something like having to do with God, who's spirit, as Jesus says there in John, John 4. But God himself is the furthest thing from undefined. He is a definite, specific person. That's one of the ways to say it, right? He's, he's God. And the Bible's like, you should know what that means. You should have that, that word filled up with content. And so our worship of him is spiritual and defined. The worship of God is spiritual, but that doesn't mean it's undefined, right? In fact, what is spiritual by definition is defined by God. Since anything that is spiritual has to do with God. And so that's the unchanging truth, I think, that Jesus was expounding when he taught. Now look at how God specifically applied this truth for Israel at the time. Look at verse 15. He says, However, you may slaughter and eat meat within all your gates, whatever your heart desires, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it, of the gazelle and the deer alike. Only you, sh- you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it on the earth like water. I was thinking as I was studying that if the sudden discussion of meat eating here seems out of the blue to you, like, okay, where did this come from? You just need to know that in the ancient world, people assumed that most spirituality would be bound up with sacrificing of some kind of animal to some kind of God. And the interesting thing is that God doesn't actually deny that connection. He affirmed the need of right sacrifice to him, you know, at his direction. But here, what I think he's doing is acknowledging the connection between worship in general and all meat eating. And this could really take us down a a rabbit trail. Uh, We don't normally think of meat eating this way, except some of you maybe, I don't know, maybe you're hardcore vegans or something. And so it's like, I don't know. Uh, But I actually think that God did want Israel to see that all he wanted Israel to see all meat eating as important. It's, it's interesting to me. And as actually part of their overall life of worship to him so that it didn't slide into pagan sacrifice, I think. And in general, you see this in the Old Testament, a life of worshiping God includes proper care for animals. So God says you can eat them as it's appropriate, but you have to acknowledge the sacredness of that animal's life. It's interesting, right? Pour the blood out on the ground. Like, don't be crazy. Don't just go around, like, biting into live animals or something. Like, chill, be civilized, treat it with respect. If you're going to eat an animal, do it the right way, right? We know that even now there's, 
you know, kosher ways of, of killing and all that uh, to try to, to try to, for the Jewish people still, to try to honor these directions of God. So look at verse 17. He says, you may not eat within your gates the tithe of your grain or your new wine or your oil, the firstborn of your herd or your flock, of any of your offerings which you vow, of your freewill offerings, or of the heave offering at your hand, of your hand. Verse 18, but you must eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God chooses, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite who is within your gates. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all to which you put your hands. Take heed to yourself that you do not forsake the Levite as long as you live in your land. So one of the things you see there is that uh, in Moses' teaching, we have God's concern for people who might be left out. That's what's happening here. The Levites, they're mentioned there, were at the center of Israelite religious life, if you know the history, but they, they weren't, God wasn't going to give them land to own. They weren't going to be landowners, and they weren't going to have the same kind of wealth that other Israelites had. So God makes a special point that true worship of God includes people who might otherwise be marginalized, right? So here it is again, I think. We're seeing the big heart, the generosity of God. And that continues in chapter 12, verse 20. Look at 20. When the Lord your God enlarges your border as he has promised you, and you say, let, let me eat meat. A lot of meat eating talk here, right? Because you long to eat meat. You may eat as much as your heart desires. Verse 21. If the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, then you may slaughter from your herd and from your flock, which the Lord has given you just as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your gates as much as your heart desires. Just as the gazelle and the deer are eaten, so you may eat them. The unclean and the clean alike may eat them. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life. You may not eat the life with the meat. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it on the earth like water. You shall not eat it. And uh that it may go well with you and your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Verse 26, only the holy things which you have and your vowed offerings you shall take and go to the place which the Lord chooses and you shall offer your burnt offerings, the meat and the blood on the altar of the Lord your God. And the blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God and you shall eat the meat. Observe and obey all these words which I command you, that it may go well with you and your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. So the background of this passage, starting in verse 20, is that back in Leviticus chapter 17, God had told Israel that whenever anyone wanted to eat meat, they had to bring the animal to the tabernacle. The te- it was actually a tent temple, right? It was a temple made of a tent in the center of their camp there in the wilderness. They had to bring the animal to the tabernacle before they killed it to ensure that it was slaughtered properly. Anytime you wanted to eat meat, you had to do this. Uh, but in the future, is the idea here, when they settled the land they were going in to take, they're not all going to be gathered in one place like that. So that, that specific command from Levit- Leviticus 17 is not going to be practical at all anymore. So here, what God does is he expands the command to say that the place where the animal slaughtered is no, the place where it's slaughtered no longer matters, but it's the way that the animal is treated that does matter. And again here, like we said, blood is always sacred. So Israel was to be a people who treated blood with reverence, never callously. And I, I think maybe that would create a baseline respect for all of life and a general acknowledgement too that God was Lord of all, he was Lord of all creation. So you, you had to acknowledge God's rules, even in something as mundane as preparing your meat to eat. And, and, and you had to acknowledge, I think, in the act of cooking, 
that um, how we treat God's creation matters. So I just wonder if part of this is, in, in addition to, you know, there's deeper things with the blood we know that have to do with the cleansing of sin, but I also think he keeps talking about the dietary part of it, and I wonder if he's just, he's, he's instilling in them just a sense of the spiritual and the sacred and, and, and meaningfulness in, in all of life. But notice in verse 26 that in the case of animals which were specifically for sacrifice, for worship specifically, the place where they were killed did matter. So again, this is, as I said, this is part of God's cleansing out the land of the hundreds or thousands of pagan shrines that were there and reinforcing his status as the only true God by drawing all worship to one specific place. And then starting in verse 29, you get more of an emphasis on the dangers. Now he's going to flip back to the dangers of being drawn into idolatry by the cultures. They were going to this place. Look at verse 29. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods. These are very interesting verses, saying... How do these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods. That's interesting. Take that to comparative religions class. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Moses says, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. And as we've been studying through Deuteronomy, now, as we move forward, we're going to move into chapter 13, and I've been hitting places where it seems like the best thing to do, I think, is just sort of read the whole section and then see what it tells us as a whole. So I'm going to do that here with chapter 13. And this section from 1229 that we just read down to the end of chapter 13 gives us an extended look at the danger and the evil of idolatry. And I think as we read it, it's helpful to keep in mind the things that we just read about who the true God is. Because knowing him is the best defense against idols. Like knowing the true God. It's like, you know, they teach about counterfeit money by studying, you study a real bill. You've all heard this example, right? I worked at a bank. They made a study. What real, after a while, looking at money, you're like, all right, I don't think I can see any much more. But they're like, know it. Because then when you see a counterfeit, you'll, you'll notice it. And knowing the true God is the best defense against being drawn towards idols. So the first thing to notice is that God knew that in Israel's future, there would be a constant danger that people would be drawn towards worshiping false gods and that that temptation could come from any number of sources. So notice chapter 13, verse 1. Just think about the the pictures that God's painting here through Moses. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and he gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, like some kind of miracle, some amazing thing, some kind of power display, saying, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. Verse 3, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments, and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet, or that dreamer of dreams, shall be put to death, because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed you from the house of bondage, to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away evil from your midst. 
Verse 6. If your brother were the son of your mother or your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, right? The, the girl you love. That's the idea. The wife of your bosom. Or your friend who is as your own soul. Your best friend, right? Imagine. Imagine that the, God understands. This could be tough. A person that's closer to you than any other person. If they come to you, just between you and them, right? Isn't that what it says? Secretly entices you. Saying, let's, let's go. Let's go serve some other gods. I know this place up on the top of that hill, the next town over. It is awesome, or whatever, which you have not known, neither you or your fathers. Verse 7, of the gods of the people which are all around you, near to you, or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. You shall not consent to him, or listen to him, or her, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him. Look at verse 9. It's intense. But you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. And you shall stone him with stones until he dies, because he sought to entice you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage. So all Israel shall hear and fear, and not again do such wickedness as this among you. Of course, just in case you're not familiar with these things, Jesus is very clear. Christians do not enact these verses as a law code, right? The government has the sword right now, and the government can make decisions on who needs to be incarcerated or worse. But... But this was Israel's law for their time, right? Look at verse 12. If you hear someone in one of your cities, which the Lord your God gives you to dwell in, saying, corrupt men have gone out from among you and enticed the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known. Then you shall inquire and search out and ask diligently. And if it is indeed true and certain, so make sure it's true, that such an abomination was committed among you, You shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it, all that is in it and its livestock, with the edge of the sword. And you shall gather all its plunder into the middle of the street and completely burn with fire the city and all its plunder for the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. So none of the accursed things shall remain in your hand, that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you, just as he swore to your fathers, because you have listened to the voice of the Lord your God to keep all his commandments, which I command you today, to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord your God. So there's the warning. And again, I think it's pretty powerful when you sort of, you hear it all together. And I think right off the bat, you notice as you read, we notice as we're reading this, the urgency of all this. Like God's really serious about this. You you can hear it there. And whenever you encounter that in scripture, it means a couple things. For one thing, it just means that it, it really is that important and urgent. Like, God doesn't waste urgency like this. I didn't wake up this morning thinking about how important the danger of idolatry was. That just wasn't on my mind, right? Probably most of you, that wasn't the first thing on your mind. But when you read something like this in Scripture, you go, oh, I should know that of all the dangers people are worried about in the world, of all the things that we're ready to go on red alert for in this culture, actually, the thing that God is urgent about is way closer to this. If Israel thought that they could ignore this issue or take it lightly or avoid it, God was trying to impress on them that they couldn't. And I wonder, again, if this isn't a temptation for God's people in every age. I just think it's so easy for us to think that because we don't have little statues that anyone is inviting us to worship. Or Although I do wonder if this exact thing is going to become more prevalent in the future. I do actually wonder if right now, 
there aren't people more explicitly just giving allegiance to other gods. And maybe you think that's crazy, but I, I bet there's places we can go in America where that's actually starting to crop up. I think we're going to see it more and more. So maybe I'm wrong. I don't know that I have to get the prophecy. I guess you'll find out. But even if that's not happening, it's a pressing matter for us too. And Jesus came, I'm sorry, after Jesus came and he died and he rose in the New Testament. This is important, Christians. In the New Testament, which was written for our time, the Apostle John wrote to Christians, 1 John 5, 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. So that's not ancient Hebrew scripture. That's current Christian scripture, right? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. He warned followers of Jesus against this exact thing. And the Apostle Peter wrote this to believers. We have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. He warns Christians about it. 1 Peter 4.3. Paul wrote this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters. There it is. People that worship idols. And he gives a long list. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. That's 1 Corinthians 6.9. And Paul also wrote, Put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That's Colossians 3.5. And there's a bunch more references like this in the New Testament, again, written directly to Christians like us. So even though we're not Israelites about to go conquer the land of Canaan, that's not our current situation, let's just be honest. Do we live in a land given over to the celebration of powers and forces that directly oppose God's word? Does our just ask some questions. Does our culture insist on obeying commands that directly oppose God's commands? Is our culture issuing commands to obey that directly oppose God's commands? Does the American populace in general love and promote things that are dark and sinful? Do we, do we feel pressure sometimes to abandon God, to honor other things more than God instead? And if the answer to all those questions is yes, then it means that idolatry is a danger for us just as much as it was for Israel. That's, I think, part of the connection here. Again, it might manifest differently. The idolatry in our culture might manifest differently than Israel because I think actually the truth is that idolatry is culturally conditioned, just like a lot of other things. It's, it's, it's got its cultural makeup. And so it's easy for one culture to be like, well, we don't do that, right? Um, you know, other cultures from other times might laugh at us that we're so moved by things that have no physical existence at all. They're just ideas. They're like, you going for ideas? We'll show you real power. Come to our temple. We'll show you our God, right? And they might think that we're just ridiculous ideas. What do they do? You know what I'm saying? And to us, we're like a little statue of a God, but it's all the same thing. It's just, it's just culturally conditioned. It's just the worship of emptiness and false gods and demonic powers. Just the same, whatever shape it takes. And so notice some of the details. If you scan your eyes over chapter 13 again, just notice some of the details. In verses 1 through 5 that we read, Moses warns people that temptations to idolatry can come from some kind of celebrity, some kind of guru or teacher, someone who claims to have spiritual authority. That's verses 1 through 5. Don't listen to them, Moses says, even if they manifest some kind of spiritual power. And the book of Revelation, if you know it, is clear. It's prophecy of the future. It's clear that this exact kind of situation is going to occur on a global scale, I think soon, but sometime in the future. 
and the and people all over the world are going to be seduced by spiritual power and and they're going to be led to worship a world leader a person and an idol of that leader exactly like this passage says and and the test for anything that's claiming you should worship it is just this or or you should follow I should say are they preaching Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead and returning as the only way to have your sins forgiven and find eternal life? Or are they preaching salvation by some other means? Again, I think our culture is particularly vulnerable, susceptible to this kind of deception. And, and again, we seem to be especially vulnerable to powerful personalities who speak with an air of authority and claim to have special knowledge or insight. And all you really have to do is have a successful daytime talk show, and you can speak as the, like the ultimate authority on all kinds of issues. It's really incredible. We're just susceptible to that as a people. And I think, you know, things like social media have actually inflamed that. You have terms like influencers and all that, right? Look at verse 6 through 11. Verses 6 through 11, again, highlight the danger on the other side of the coin. This isn't someone that we don't know, someone with a platform. This is the person we do know, right? This is persuasion at a grassroots level. Like I said, family member to family member, friend to friend. Notice, in Israel, that was such a serious issue that it carried the death sentence. Let's just see it there. Which meant that even though that situation was carried out in private, God wanted it to be seen as a public issue, as a societal issue. The thing those two friends talked about. God wanted the knowledge of the evil of this sort of thing to permeate the whole Israelite culture. That's what verse 11 says there. And, and the same level of concern carries over into verse 12 all the way to the end of the chapter. Moses tells Israel that they weren't only supposed to be concerned on a family level or with their circle of friends, but they were to be concerned at the regional level. That's the end of the chapter, right? The national level as well. And like we've been seeing as we read through these Old Testament passages, the key to understanding directions like this is to take the intensity of the penalty to be an indication of the seriousness of the evil, right? So you know that it's a dark, dangerous thing when God says, if that happens in that town, the whole town needs to be destroyed. You take the seriousness of the penalty and you go, okay, whatever I used to think, clearly that was actually a really big deal. That was a dangerous, serious thing. If you, if you came in to the doctor's office and you showed them something on your arm and the doctor looked at it and then he went out of the room and everyone else that came in was all dressed in a complete clean suit with a breathing apparatus, you wouldn't be like, big overreaction. You'd be like, oh no, what's wrong? with Like, what, what is that? You know, like it, you would judge the seriousness of the thing by the reaction of the people who knew what they were talking about. And this is, I've said this before on Monday nights, but it is a major like heart switch where we really begin to get to know God. You read passages like this and instead of being like, oh man, sometimes God's rough. You go, okay, what does he know that I don't know? And again, his point is, this is something that you cannot, you cannot play with. So Christians, I just recommend a trip through the verses in the New Testament that mention idolatry. I read some of them tonight. You can look them up on, I don't know, Google. Wherever, wherever you find good Bible verses, probably not Google. Uh, blueletterbible.org, right? I-D-O-L with an asterisk after it. And you'll get idol, idols, idolatry, you'll get it all. And you can just look at all the New Testament passages that mention it. And then I think it would never hurt to take all that to God for all of us and spend some time praying 
that God would help us discern any area in our life that this might apply to, right? Or any area of temptation it might apply to, or any potential danger in our hearts or our surroundings. We live in, again, you live in a land saturated with idols. You just have to be aware. Uh, Anywhere where idolatry is something that God would warn us about, because if it's in the Bible, it's important. And if you don't know Christ tonight, we started off saying this, all these words inspired by God mean that this is what it means for you. It means that God wants to wipe the lenses of your mind clean. He does, he has to do this to all of us. All of us need this done, right? We've all been sold lies that America is on this grand project to free humanity and like press forward into this bright future where we all do whatever we want. We're we're spreading this to the whole globe, right? We just indulge every, celebrate every passion, indulge ourselves without any limits, and everyone's just going to be happy and strong and free all over the whole globe if they would just sort of get in the parade, the, the train that we're on, right? But the reality is that all of it is nothing more than worshiping the idols of passion and self-determination and really just self in general. It's just humanity worshiping itself. And in the end, just like every culture since the dawn of time, it's going to turn out to be nothing more than people worshiping demons who tell them to indulge themselves at the expense of others, at the expense of others. And everyone knows that's what's going on right now. And if you don't follow Christ, if that's never been your life, God wants you to know something tonight. The message that he gave us to spread is this. All of the idols that you served are empty. And that's why serving those idols has left you empty. If you serve something and it leaves you empty, it means that thing is empty. There is one God who is full of the fullness of life. And if you serve him, guess how he leaves you? Full. Right? God has already shown how generous and big-hearted, how good-hearted he is, by sending Jesus, this is the gospel, the good news, to die on our, our behalf, to take the punishment for our sins so that we could have his status, his righteousness, his status with God instead of our old guilty status. And so we could be forgiven and freed from worshiping idols. And tonight God wants you to know that until Jesus Christ returns, there's an open door, there's a space where if you turn from your sins and you acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, and that God raised him from the dead, you'll be freed from your sin and guilt, and you'll be released from serving those idols. God can break the power of things that hold power over us, right? There's things, there's all kinds of things in the world that are more powerful than us for all our pride, and they can catch us. But God loves humans, and he wants to set us free. And we, we just read it Sunday morning with Pastor Joe. Whoever the Son sets free is free indeed, free for real, truly free. And God can release you through the blood of Christ from from whatever it is that's held you in bondage because the Lord desires men and women to be strong and free and clean and whole and healthy and sane. And that's what he does in our lives. That's what he does for us. And so everyone is invited in. And if you spent your life being the opposite of all those things, First of all, you found the right church because that's like all of us. Everyone's past. But second of all, you found the right God. He knows what we are. And he came to invite real people, real people with real lives and real pasts. Jesus is like, yeah, that's, I don't need fake people. I don't need video game people. 
I need real people. And so if you're a real person and you have real guilt and real idols that you want to be free from, Christ can do that for you tonight. And for the rest of us, like I said, New Testament's clear. It's just great to, to be clear on this the way God's word is clear. So let's stand. Hey guys, Tom here from the Philly Arnold's podcast. We hope that this teaching from our in-person gathering here at Calvary Chapel of Philadelphia was a blessing to you. If you're listening and you're living in the Philadelphia area and you're looking for a young adults ministry to get plugged into, we'd love to see you out. For more information about our ministry or the podcast, visit philyyoungadults.com. God bless you guys.